So I remember a summer a few years ago when I was at camp and I noticed this girl. Uh, she had uh, dark eyes and long black hair and she was a pretty girl. I noticed her in the evening chapel. And uh, I thought she reminds me of Lois a little bit. And I watched her that week a little bit, and I talked to the camp director, asked him a couple questions about her. And then later in the week, I called my son, and I said, I think you should come up here to camp, and you should, there's a girl, I think you should meet up here. So he came up to camp, and he met this girl, and then they kind of went places together, and you could kind of see they were sparking, and having a good time, and that was a lot of fun to watch. And I especially thought it was kind of cool because, you know, I was the matchmaker of that deal. And about Friday, I went into the room, and Kyle had his stuff, and he was just throwing it in his bag. And he looked like he was really frustrated. He just threw all the stuff in his bag. And I go, what are you doing? He goes, I'm going home. I'm like, why? And he said, she's engaged. <laughs> and I said, I said, well, you know, I would keep her number because she looked like she was, you know, Sometimes girls change their mind. I remember the painful rejection that we felt right then. That was kind of the first time I'd seen our firstborn son go through that. And he, he just went home early. And then Sunday, I went home. And I remember driving home alone. And that whole drive, just feeling so sad, watching my son suffer that rejection. Of course, the edge is taken off of it now because they have three kids. So, you know. It ended up working out kind of nice. And that's kind of funny to think about. But I also remember a day when my daughter Heidi came home. We didn't know it at the time, but her marriage was over. And she had all of her stuff in the car, including a pitiful house plant that had been thrown out of the house onto the ground. And she was desperately sad and went down and we gave her the basement to live in. And at nighttime, we would lay in our bed and listen to our grandchildren weep. It was so hard to watch that rejection happen. We didn't know it at the time, but a few months later, that rejection would turn into our own rejection. But of course, the silver lining of that is we get to be here, so we're super glad to be here. At the time, we couldn't see that, though. Have you ever been through a painful rejection? Have you ever experienced uh, being shut out, not making the team? Seemed like I didn't make every team I tried out for when I was a kid. It took me a while to figure out I was probably not a very good athlete. <laughs> you ever had someone break up with you? You ever had someone divorce you? Cancel you? ghost you, unfriend you, block you, attack your character, malign your character, oppose you or judge you? Well, today, we're in a series of messages, of course, and we're on the sixth of the seven churches of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, which received a letter through the Apostle John from Jesus Christ. And the church in Philadelphia, the sixth of these letters, suffered a painful kind of rejection. From studying this letter, we can get a really powerful way to really understand about how to endure rejection in an extremely powerful way. So for those of you who like a little order, here's a bit of an outline that I'm going to follow. And I will tell you, my first point is the longest point. So you don't get all worried, you know, 
when I'm like, I'm still on point one, and we're like an hour and a half in, you're like, when is this going to be over? Uh, no, the first point will be, we'll talk about Philadelphia, and then we'll talk about Bethel, and then we'll talk about you. We'll talk about Philadelphia, we'll talk about Bethel, and we'll talk about you. Let's get cracking. So uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, and to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one will open. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one opens. Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because I have kept my word about patient endurance, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write him on the name on him, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Philadelphia, Bethel, and you first understand each one of these letters is seven parts, lots of sevens in Revelation. There's a greeting, there's a description of Christ. There's what they did right in most of the letters, what they did wrong in most of the letters, a correction, a warning or threat, and then a promise of, to those who overcome. First, there's a greeting. He says, to the angel or to the messenger of the church of Philadelphia. And you know this messenger may be an angel assigned to the church. It may be one of the elders or a presiding elder or, or leader, the messenger of the church of Philadelphia. It may very well be that they, this group traveled with seven leaders from churches, and they, and they went around that, that ancient postal route, one dropping off as they read the letters to each of the churches. Now there are two left. There's Philadelphia and next week Laodicea. So the background in Philadelphia is interesting because the city of Philadelphia was a small city, but it's very fertile because it was, uh, there was volcanic ash. And as a result of that, they had beautiful vineyards. And the vineyards rivaled the vineyards of Rome so much that Rome decided they would come and destroy the vineyards of Philadelphia so that there would be no competition. The city itself had suffered a great rejection and a financial crisis as a result of that. Whenever Jesus wrote to a city, he wrote with a real keen uh, awareness of their socio-economic, social-political environment. And you can read that in to each of the letters. It's specifically true here. And Jesus' self-identity, in each one of the letters, Jesus gives an identity of himself. And usually that identity comes out of that vision in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 and following. In this particular case, it's consistent with that, but the words don't come out of that. He says, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David. He opens and no one will shut. He shuts and no one will open. 
To say the Holy One was a reference any Old Testament student would recognize was Jesus was a, is a self-referenced deity. He was saying, I am representative of and I am the Holy One. He's a, he's, a, he's a profound and direct claim of deity and the Bible is full of claims of the deity of Christ. This is just one of them. No one that's honest could really ever read the book of Revelation with the question in mind, is Jesus God? And miss that Revelation is claiming that Jesus is, of course, very God of very God. He's going to say this for a very important reason you're going to see in a minute, but he calls himself the Holy One. He calls himself the True One or the Authentic One, and he says he has the keys of David. He opens and no one shuts. He shuts and no one opens. In other words, he's claiming to have control of the Jewish people, ultimate authority over who comes and goes from the church, from the synagogue. He's in the line of authority from David, and he has ultimate messianic authority over all the wealth of heaven. And this is really important because of what he's going to say next. What's happening in Philadelphia is that the little cluster of Jesus followers is being persecuted, is being shut out, is being rejected by a very powerful Jewish synagogue. So Jesus comes along, he has a message to Philadelphia, and he says, look, I'm in charge of all the Jewish people. I have the keys to all of that. I'm the holy God of the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, if you will. And so if you think about this, we used to run a big hotel, 16 stories, 500 rooms. We, you might have, well, I was the director, so if you wanted something, you would probably come to me. But you know what I would do? I would almost always send you to Ken Krause. And Ken Krause is the guy that had the keys to everything. He's the guy you really wanted to know. He had the keys. That's a lame illustration. Jesus is saying, I have the keys to the kingdom. I have the keys to true religion. I have the keys to the Jewish people. They shut you out, but I'm the one who opens and no one shuts. I'm the one who shuts and no one opens. The powerful, oppressive synagogue claimed to speak for God. And he said, I am the Holy One from God. The synagogue, the powerful, oppressive synagogue in Philadelphia claimed authenticity. They said, we're the real ones. He goes, no, you are the synagogue of Satan and you're lying. You're going to see that in a minute. He says, I am the true one. I am the authentic one. The synagogue threatened to bar people from its membership. He said, I have the keys to who is in and who is out. And this is still true about Jesus today. He has the keys to the kingdom, right? No one comes to the Father but by me. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. But the name of, the name of Jesus who has the keys. This is so important to understand. I know we're going to talk about you later, but right now let's talk about you for a second. Listen to me. Some of you are underemployed and you'd like to have a greater opportunity or a raise he's the one who holds the keys to the door of opportunity some of you are under resourced and you'd like to get a break he's the one who holds the keys some of you are married and you'd like your marriage to be happier he holds the keys to that some of you are unmarried and you'd like to be married I, when i was preparing this message i thought about a girl I talked to her recently, who's a lovely girl from, she lived on the edge of an Indian reservation in a place called Gallup, New Mexico, and she went to a church there, and there were no boys in the church her age, and none that she would be interested in at all, none. 
And then the pastor, her mother would say, There's a, you need to marry a fine Christian young man. And she's like, I've never met any. She went off to a camp out one day. There's a, there was a college and career camp out in her church. She thought, well, that would be fun. And she signed up. And when she looked at the sign-up sheet, all the other people who signed up were girls. There were no boys at all. She said, oh, well. And she went off to the camp out. I know this because I was watching Facebook, and my son Daniel, who was working in New Mexico at the time, went on a camp out with his church, and there were no girls. It was all boys. I thought that was great. I said, go to New Mexico. Go to New Mexico. Don't meet girls. Come back home. So he went to this camp out. I was watching on Facebook, and I saw a picture of him jumping off a rock with a pretty girl. I'm like, I called him on the phone. I said, what's that all about? Anyway, because you're supposed to be on an all-boys camp out. He goes, craziest thing happened. There was a group of girls here, too, from somewhere else. So at the wedding, when I was doing the wedding, Kate says, in the sweetest way, she says, when I drove away from that camp out, my heart was so sad because I thought, I will never see that guy again. Ladies and gentlemen, I know it may seem like that door is closed and locked, but we know that Jesus has the keys to whatever needs to be open. Will you have patient endurance? We'll get to that. Some of you wrestle with dark temptations, lust or worry or greed or self-rejection or anger, and you've wrestled with them all of your life. Understand that door seems like it's closed and locked and you'll never be able to get in, but Jesus has the keys. He opens doors that no one can close and he closes doors so that no one can open. What did this group do right? Well, they're commended in verses 8 through the first part of 11. Listen to what he says. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. And behold, I make, you, make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Nothing escapes him. He says, I know your deeds. And he wasn't here talking about, I know the bad things you've done. He said, I know the good things you've done. I see everything. I miss nothing. This is a wonderful thing about God. He's welcomed them and he will use them. He says, I've set before you an open door. This would be an open door into the kingdom. It would also be frequently used, especially in Pauline literature, though John wrote this, as an open door of opportunity. This would be true too. And, and the, the, the church in Philadelphia survived for centuries and centuries and 1,200 years. It was a very resilient church. And then he said, he, he blessed them, even though they were a small, powerless church. He says, I know that you have tiny power. And the idea of the original language is itsy, teeny, tiny. I know you're just a little, tiny church. There's no reason you should succeed unless I empower you. But he does. And they were marked by obedience. They're characterized by submission to God as true followers. He says, he said, you have kept my word about patient endurance. This is what Kate needed to have when she was tempted to believe there are no nice Christian boys, right? This is what we need to believe when we say, 
my job really isn't good enough. I need a, I need a job with more hours and better pay. God, ha Jesus has the keys to that. You may, he may ask, he may require some faithfulness of you that you would continue in patient endurance and pray. But he's able to open that door and any door he wants opened. They were loyal. It says, you have not denied my name. And I suggest to you, if the doors are closed in your life, get to know the one who has the keys and never deny his name and keep trusting him. Like Job says, if you kill me, I'm still going to trust you. My dying word will be of loyalty to you, right? Because you've kept my word about patient endurance. Verse 10, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. Hear this well. Listen, if something is at his feet, at Jesus' feet, and if you are at Jesus' feet, then something is at your feet. So your job is to stay at Jesus' feet. Did you get that? You stay at Jesus' feet because whatever is at his feet is at your feet. And that's what he says about, he says about the Jews. He says, they're going to come and bow before you. Well, the Jews weren't going to worship these people, but they were all going to, and this is what we should pray for our enemies or our oppressors. Let them become like friends. Let's overcome them by making them children of God, friends. We all bow at the feet of Jesus. And, and this is what he said would happen. And literal, there, this happened, I believe, in two ways. There, were, there would be people that would come into the Philadelphia church from the synagogue and be converted. And we know that because the, in church history, the church was resilient and it lasted and it grew. But we also believe, and I believe with all of my heart, that this is also a, a near fulfillment, which is partial, and a far referent that is complete. Examples of that in prophetic literature are common. And that Jesus was also referring to a time of ingathering of Jewish people. And you can also read about that in Romans chapter 11, for instance, about the fact that there's going to be a time of soul harvest of Jewish people. And then there is this interesting kind of mysterious reference to being kept from the hour of trial now there's a difference of opinion among godly people who love the return of christ some believe this is one of those references that implies that the church god's people will not go through the tribulation period of time that the that the scriptures talk about you know i would tend to be among them but if i'm wrong i will know where i went wrong but this is i would tend to be among them John MacArthur would be one of them too. And he wrote in a succinct way about this. He says this description is an event that he believes is still future for a short time will severely test the whole world. And it must refer to the time of tribulation, the seven-year period before Christ's earthly kingdom is consummated, featuring the unleashing of divine wrath and judgments. And they're expressed in seals, right? Seal judgments and trumpet judgments and bowl judgments. So you know that in Revelation chapters 6 through 18, if you, if you read the Revelation, you know whatever they mean, there are series of judgments poured out from heaven onto earth in series of seven. And, 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 they're, and th that's what's described there. And many believe this is a description of the tribulation and the last three and a half years, the great tribulation. And some believe Christians will go through the great tribulation and be spared in that. Those implied believers will be martyred. And some believe that Christians will be spared the great tribulation. And frankly, the book of Revelation doesn't take that as its main theme. Jesus is the main theme. And the fact that Jesus is going to come back and take over the earth is the main theme. And so you have to 
kind of cherry-pick inferences to say, well, where is the rapture here? Oh, it looks like the church is absent here, so maybe the rapture, oh, there's the four and 20 elders in heaven, so maybe the church is in heaven there, and oh, and we're spared from the wrath, and so maybe we're lifted out, and, and we don't experience the wrath. This would be, if you, if you were to arm wrestle me, that would be where I would come down on this. Here's what I know. He holds the keys. He can deliver us from, or he can deliver us through, and someone said, if you're in one of the places in the earth now where you're being tortured for your faith, it's kind of immaterial whether or not you're going through the great tribulation because you are going through great tribulation. But the wrath, God doesn't pour his wrath out on his own. And he's promising, in at least in a general way, to this church in Philadelphia, I'm capable of delivering you from this oppression that you're in. And can I say this to you, church? He's capable of delivering you from whatever oppression you're going through. He's capable of taking that and using it for his good and his, his glory, for your good and for his glory. What did they do wrong? Most of the churches, there's a comment about what they did wrong, a condemnation, if you will. There is no comment like this about Philadelphia. We know that it would be impossible for a human church to be perfect, but it's commended but not condemned. This is one of the two churches that doesn't have any correction from the lord and that's really hopeful i like to think what would it take for our church to receive a commendation from jesus that he would say i saw bethel and i got nothing bad to say wow god help us be the kind of people whose hearts are so tender to god that he would look on our church not for our own pride but say i am pleased and he, he doesn't condemn, he doesn't correct the Philadelphia church. What does he want them to do? He says, verse 11, hold fast to what you have. It's like a job review. We do this here a little bit. What do we want you to keep doing? What do we want you to stop doing? What do we want you to start doing? That's what we do, job review sometimes. What do we want you to keep doing? What do we want you to stop doing? What do you want you to... And Jesus is saying to the church, you keep holding fast to what you have and the warning then the sixth chunk of this of seven things right is that no one will seize your crown there's no danger that genuine believers lose their salvation because they didn't gain their salvation by their own works it was a gift of god not of works lest any man should boast conferred upon people who believe but there is a danger that we'll lose our rewards and this is a serious thing and it's a warning here in the scripture it's not a small thing to lose your reward to see someone would seize your crown and then there's a promise to those who overcome every one of these letters to the churches includes a promise to the one who overcomes who conquers who perseveres the nike word right like the nike victory word that we think about when we think about athletics and this is really rich in your Bible at chapter uh, 3 and verse 12, and notice he's, he gives them a, a powerful promise, and he layers on four different powerful promises that he gives. It's very interesting to me. Verse 12, the one who overcomes, the one who conquers, the one who's victorious, the one who perseveres, he, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice those four things. Our name on a pillar in the temple. These, this is written to people who are being excluded from the Jewish synagogue, who are being told, 
God doesn't approve of you. They're being shut out. He says, I have the keys and I can open the door that no one can close and I can close the door that no one can open. And I'm not only going to let you in the temple, I'm going to put your name on a pillar in the temple. God's name is written on us. I'm going to write the name, my name on you, a sense of ownership. The name of the city is written on those who persevere. An everlasting citizenship, an ultimate eternal sense of belonging. Why is it that people, especially in the fall of the year, go around with like a hat with an M on it? Why do they do that? Have you seen this? Some people are over the top on this. They got a hat with an M. They got a mask with an M. They got a shirt with an M. Phil came in today with a shirt with an M. And I challenged him about it. He said he's put children through college at that place with an M. So he has every right. He has skin in that game. Some of us here, uh, we have one couple, and, and, and he's got an M on his mask, and she has a little Spartan on her mask. I mean, what's that all about? When I came here, I kept waiting when I got interviewed, like, are they going to ask me, are you a Michigan fan or are you a Michigan State fan? Because, you know, they, I, was, I assumed they were going to ask me that, and I told my wife, well, if they don't ask me, I'm not going to tell. I'd like to stay out of trouble be here a long time, have lots of friends, you know. So I've been really quiet about that. But it's funny how in a simple way like that, you know, we, we got our school on our math. We're, we're, we have our loyalty. But we all know that our security isn't in our Big Ten loyalty. And our security isn't in our school loyalty, as fun as that is. Our security is God of heaven says, I'm going to put a stamp on you. You are mine. I was in South Bend, Indiana a few years ago. And I was spending time with one of my nephews. We were watching a football game. And all the clear blue sky, Bobby Dunbar, he says to me, hey, Uncle Slim, he called me Uncle Slim because, well, you know, look at me, of course. He says, um, Uncle Slim, he says, uh, have you seen my tattoo? I'm like, no. Well, let me see it. He goes, I think you'll like it. He pulled up his shirt and he showed me his tattoo. And I recognized it right away. It was handwriting from a man I love very much. His dad, Bob Dunbar, my brother-in-law who passed away a few years ago shoveling snow to get his family to church. Bobby had a unique handwriting. He wrote a note to his boy one day, I love you, comma, dad. Bobby took that to the tattoo artist and had it written on his arm. Jesus says, you're mine. I'm going to write your name on me and my name on you. I'm going to put your name in the, on a pillar in the temple of God. And if you feel left out, I'm going to put your, the name of the holy city on you so you'll know you always have a place in the holy city. And if that's not enough, I'm going to put my new name nobody knows yet on you. My name's going to be on you. He wants you to have that security. Is that beautiful? Are you listening? Look at verse 13. See what it says? He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you listening to the Holy Spirit? Are you like all ears? God, whatever you want to say, I'm just all ears. I'm listening. Margaret Feinberg has written a beautiful book about visiting a friend who in Oregon who's a shepherd, a female shepherd. She had a flock of sheep up in the mountains in Oregon. And Margaret wanted to study what it would be like to raise sheep because the Bible talks about sheep. So she went with her friend up into the mountains, and when they got close to the flock, her friend began to whisper. And she said, why are you whispering? 
And our friend says, because the sheep, if they hear my voice, they recognize my voice, and they will all come running right away. Do you, do you have spiritual ears to hear the Lord if he wants to encourage you and say, trust me to open that door? Trust me to close that door. Trust me to deal with that enemy. Trust me to deal with that hardship. Trust me to deal with that temptation. You, can you hear him when he says that? Does that make confidence well up in you? Are you listening? So Bethel, I said I was going to speak to you. God, make us that kind of church. God, help us to be a church that's listening, kind of like the Philadelphia church, even though we may have things that we go through or suffer or that threaten to divide us. We're not going to let them do that because we know the one who has the keys. We want to endure with hope and with patience. Be the kind of people that when we come to the end of our life, our faith is still strong in the Lord no matter what we go through, no matter what hardships that we face. And can I talk to you, you personally, will you trust God to believe that he can open all the doors in your life that need to be opened and close all the doors that need to be closed? Have you ever felt shut out? Have you ever felt, did you ever have somebody break up with you or break your heart or divorce you or cancel you or ghost you or attack you or malign you, hurt you, or reject you? Have you ever been crying in the basement wondering where is God? Why is he letting me go through this? Can I just appeal to you like the Philadelphia church? Patient endurance. Trust God. Keep trusting God. Because as Jesus opens the door for you, let me tell you six things. This won't take long. No, it doesn't matter how big your enemies are or how small you are. If Jesus opens the door for you, it doesn't matter how strong your enemies are or how weak you are. If Jesus opens the door, it doesn't matter how numerous your enemies are or how few your allies are. If Jesus opens the door for you, it doesn't matter how wealthy your enemies are or how poor you are. I was in the mountains of Kentucky. I like going down there. In the, in the mountains of eastern Kentucky, often there's some wealth, but there's a lot of poverty. And there was a man, um, and he, his, his name was Bill, and he went to Biola, a Bible Institute of Los Angeles. One day they said, it, when he graduated, if you go to the mountains of eastern Kentucky, they will let you in the public schools to give the gospel. So he got an old Jeep, and he went to the mountains of eastern Kentucky, and he drove up and down those mountains and into those hollers, into those little schools. He said one time he was driving down in a, a little holler, and he said somebody shot at him. And he said, they missed, though. He said, he said to a friend later, they, they shot at me, but they missed me. He said the, the, they shot right in front of the Jeep. He said the dust went up, and the fellows laughed. They said, those guys knew what they were doing. If they wanted to put a bullet between your eyes, they would have put a bullet between your eyes. That's where the second shot would have gone if you hadn't turned around and gotten out of there. He has some amazing stories to tell. But, one of the, but I met him when I was speaking at this uh, Kentucky Mountain Mission. And I went to the ca cafeteria one day, and the ladies from down there in the mountains got the beans out of your garden, like real beans, not fake beans. And they put like the bacon grease on them. And we were there, and we were eating the, those beans, which is so good. And I said, so what do you do? Because I figured, well, you know, he's an old fella around the camp. He probably fixes stuff, whatever. And he says, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm Bill. They, they call me Preacher Bill. He goes, I, I, I just kind of go around and tell little kids about Jesus, what I've done for, I think he said, 60 years. And uh, I said, so you live at the time, you know, I didn't have a job. 
and uh, didn't know if I would. And I was going from camp to camp and asking people to help me. People were helping me. And I said, so did you live like on support? For the, that's what I, I've done that all my, all my entire ministry. I'm like, really? Tell me more about that. He said, you know, my wife and I, he says, you can't do that without making sacrifices. And my wife and I were, were happy to sacrifice. He said, but when the kids came along, we kind of hated it when we didn't have money for milk and stuff. He said, I remember one particular day, he said, our little baby girl needed milk. And I said to the Lord when I was praying and walking in front of my cabin, he said, God, we don't mind sacrificing, but would you please provide a few dollars so my little girl can have milk? And then he thought, well, probably somebody sent a donation. And he walked over to the mailbox. He opened up the mailbox and he looked in the mailbox. He said, there was nothing in the mailbox, no mail that day. So he said he walked on down the road to talk to the Lord some more. And he came back by. <laughs> he said, I decided I'd check the mailbox again. Even though the mail only runs once a day, he just checked the mailbox. And there were three $1 bills in the mailbox. He found out later on that there was a little boy down the way that knew about what he did. And he'd mowed a lawn and he took the $3 and he put it in his mailbox that day. And he had milk for his daughter. He writes a story about it. He's got, he had a ventriloquist dummy that he got, and then it broke, and he had to have it fixed. And while it was getting fixed, he got another one. So then he got them both back. So we learned to do it with two dummies. So he has a book called The Dummy in the Middle. He died a few years ago, a couple years ago. Went to be the Lord. His widow lives at the base of the mountain in a little log cabin there. And God provided for him while he served the Lord. Because if Jesus is holding the keys in your life, it doesn't matter who hates you, if he loves you, doesn't matter how poor you are or how wealthy your enemies are, doesn't matter who slanders you, if Jesus cherishes you. I heard Kurt Harlow, he's a pastor out west, and he'd gone to Cannon Beach, Oregon. And Cannon Beach, Oregon is a really, really beautiful place. My, our daughter lives there near Cannon Beach. Our, our daughter went to Bible school there. You've probably seen that iconic haystack rock. It's a, just everywhere you walk, it's just beautiful ocean escapes. Kurt said he was walking there one day, and he was just drinking in the beauty of, of this, these seascapes and these mountains. And he said there's a little footbridge that someone had built that you could walk over. And he said somebody had vandalized that, and they had written Satan rules. He said... They spelled Satan, S-A-T-I-N. He said, so their, you know, their theology was bad, and their spelling was even worse, and unless they meant to say satin rules. But he said they vandalized that beautiful place. And, and he said this, you know, God, when we slander other people, when we attack other people, when we lie about other people, when we shut other people out, when we divorce other people, we hurt other people, we reject other people, then we're, we're vandalizing God's property. And God says he's going to step in and defend what he loves. And, who he, and, and you, you may have been hurt, and you may have been rejected. But God says, I see, and you should hear. And he has the keys. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you. That we could be here today and we could study your word and you could speak to our sometimes hurting, rejected hearts. And we realize, Lord, if, if you love us, it doesn't matter who hates us. If you receive us, 
It doesn't matter who rejects us. If you are going to open the door, it doesn't matter who closes the door. We thank you for that. And today I pray, as these who have gathered in your name go out to their work and to their homes and to their schools, help them to see that they represent you and that you will empower them and help them and give them what they need and give them what to say and give them wisdom about what to do. Give them a great love for your word, I pray, and a desire to pray. Draw them close to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.